Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley welcoming you to episode 105 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast that has been working its way through the Criterion Collection in the original chronological order of release of all the films that bear that Criterion imprint. It includes disc releases, uh, streaming options, laser discs, you name it. And uh, I'm kind of doing a little bit of an intro to this episode because this is a, a different one than our usual format. I've just kind of described the scheme, and this started as a blog back in 2009. We've been working our way chronologically through the whole list of films. I've got a spreadsheet and, and all of that that kind of guides my uh, viewing schedule as well as the, uh, you know, kind of the, the sequence of films that we talk about here on the podcast. But for today, I am making a pretty notable exception to my rules as we reel it back a little bit. Uh, The normal sequence of my uh, podcast right now is that we're in the films of 1972. And so just by going through that list, uh, the next one on my list would be Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Gorin's Tu va bien. And I was also going to throw in Letter to Jane, which is a short film, a sort of a supplemental feature on the DVD release. It's a DVD-only release from the Criterion Collection from some years ago. But uh, anybody who's even you know somewhat familiar with Godard's career understands that Tu va bien is kind of at a different phase of his uh, of his work than uh, the films that kind of made him famous and continue to make him kind of a very pivotal influential director and auteur. And we're going to get into our, our talk about Godard in a bit. But uh, with Tu Bien sort of being at the end of a secondary phase of Godard's career, I thought, you know, I don't want to just plunk right into that movie without kind of putting it in some context, because uh, Godard and Goren basically had been a team for several years uh, prior to making Tu Bien and, and Letter to Jane. And so I thought, well, let's go ahead and step back a little bit and get some context of what they were doing here. And for that context, uh, there happens to be a, a, a three Blu-ray a DVD, actually a dual format set from Arrow, that captures at least the major films that Godard and Goren produced during this period from 1968 to 1971. 
So I thought, let's go ahead and talk about those films in that uh, Godard and Goren 5 film 6871 Arrow set, kind of as their own thing. Even though it's an Arrow release, it's not Criterion, I thought it's really important to put Tuva Bien in its context by understanding how it kind of grew out of this earlier work. <laughs> but then, as I started going into that box and kind of looking at that, those contents, I said, you know what? To get the proper context for this box, <laughs> we have to go back further into Godard's career because this was a very transitional phase for him, uh, stepping away from the Nouvelle Vague, New Wave, kind of pop art infused uh, sensibilities of those of those early to mid '60s films. But uh, there was kind of a break. I mean, if you took it, take a look at the classic Godard filmography and and what people are into, what they tend to talk about. You start with Breathless, of course. That was his big feature debut. And then you take it up to somewhere around uh, Perot Le Fou, 1965, I believe, uh, Masculine Feminine, 1966, which just got a Blu-ray upgrade earlier this year. So that's kind of the the peak period. And then maybe you can throw Weekend in there as another film that gets a lot of attention. But, you know, there is that transitional era, that year of 1966 to 67, uh, talking about four particular films, uh, Made in USA, two or three things I know about her, La Chinoise, which is not a Criterion release. Again, that's released by Kino Lorber, but a very important film in this in this little transition that Godard was going through, and then, as I already mentioned, Weekend. So that's kind of where Godard's um, first phase of making somewhat commercially oriented cinema uh, kind of comes to its end, and then you get into the Ziga Vertov group. This is kind of a collective that Godard and Goran formed to respond to the political and social cultural events of that era as well as a response to Godard's personal crisis. He had gone through the breakup of a marriage, a failed proposal to another woman, and an, a, a marriage to a, another woman. And those three women actually all play very pivotal roles in the films that we're about to discuss. And there's a fourth woman who's uh, kind of the lead in, in Weekend, who did not play a role in Godard's personal life, but was in the sense uh, the object of some of his wrath and contempt. Uh, so, yeah, so very complicated uh, little uh, synopsis here, but we're going to talk about those four films. Uh, I've kind of titled this episode Godard 66-67 because it's probably the most efficient way of summing up what we're going to talk about today. When I say we, I have a guest in mind. Uh, in fact, he's here on the line right now, John Lobinger. John, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Thanks, David. It's so great to uh, to talk with you today. Absolutely, yeah. So, and and how did this uh, particular pairing come up? I mean, I, I you know, I, I, in fact, it's a little bit fuzzy in my memory. I think I saw you had posted um, maybe on one of our Facebook film groups or something like that uh, a quote from uh, "Everything Is Cinema," the biography of Jean Luc Godard, written by Richard Brody. I think it came out around two thousand eight. So you're kind of going through that book. So, John, just kind of fill us in about your little uh, exploration, investigation into Godard and, and kind of where that's coming from for you and how our paths crossed here. Yeah, I think it was something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the exact quote, but I think it was something along the lines of during the student uprising of May 68, uh, the, the even though Godard was active in the uprising, I think the students 
you know, they had a more anarchic bent. So even someone as, uh, as radical as Godard was still seen as the authority. So they would write, they would scrawl all this graffiti, you know, sort of lighthearted, some of it revolutionary sloganing. But they made fun of Godard. They said, art is dead, regardless of what Godard thinks. Um, <laughs> and and yeah. stuff like that, poking fun at the old man. Um, so, yeah. So, I... I Oh, gosh. So, let's basically... Now, let's add context to the context to the context. <laughs> um, right, right. Which is so appropriate for a podcast <laughs> covering <laughs> covering uh, any film of Jean-Luc Godard, but particularly, I think, uh, uh, the eight or nine or ten films that you'll be discussing over these two episodes. Okay, so I've been reading a lot, and I've been reading some big, as, as I've been joking with my friends, I've been reading some dad books. Maybe it's appropriate <laughs> that I'm reaching that age, but... Yeah. So I read a, a, a book called Postwar by a really prominent historian uh, who passed away a few years ago. I think his name is pronounced Tody Jute. And he writes about continental Europe in particular, also about Great Britain, um, after World War II. And Jean-Luc Godard comes up a shockingly large amount <laughs> for a mm. book that's about you know, a broad span of history. Jean-Luc Godard keeps on getting mentioned uh, uh, in that book. Then I also, I I owned everything in cinema, but hadn't gotten around to reading it and um, just sort of taking a break from some of my other dad books, uh, you know, big historical tombs. I picked up everything in cinema and then decided, okay, if I'm going to read about Godard's life, I should also watch the films. So this has been the most epic rabbit hole of Jean-Luc Godard <laughs> that I never imagined uh, I wanted. Um, so as I just randomly mentioned this, and I've also been so so much serendipity with your podcast because I've also been watching a lot of Giallo and also mm -hmm. getting into John Waters mm, uh, with some okay. of his films yeah. temporarily available on cr the Criterion channel. So... Yeah, it all just worked out great. And I'm so thrilled to talk to somebody who has been wrestling with Jean-Luc Godard much longer than I have. Just in, in terms <laughs> yeah, of like yeah. reading your notes, mm -hmm. uh, I feel a little bit like uh, 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 Wiazemski talking to um, her professor on the train where it's like, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the avid, passionate student talking to the experts. So I'm really excited to discuss these topics with you. Okay, we'll just put the Molotov cocktails down, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just start there. <laughs> well, well, thanks, John. And, and I am equally delighted to be talking to you because, uh, yeah, it's it's always best to just kind of have these dialogues and discourse rather than just letting them rattle around in my brain. And so I, I'm very thankful that you've got the time and the inclination to get into it with me because Godard, he's a complex character. I mean, again, backing up to the context, I mean, he is a director, he is an auteur, he is kind of a co-founder of the Nouvelle Vague. Um, but even as you said, I mean, the fact that he came up in this sort of political, cultural history that you're reading, um, 
he's beyond that. He he is a major cultural figure, or at least he was for a period of time. I, I guess it's probably reasonable to say he's faded into some obscurity at this point. I mean, he's an old guy. Uh, he's still with us, and I'm thankful for that. It's one of those kind of older, like Belmondo. He just passed recently uh, on a Karina not that long ago as well. And so you wonder any day now, you know, you might be seeing the obituary notice. Uh, I, I certainly don't wish that upon him. But, uh, yeah, he's a, he's up there in years, but is still a very compelling creative figure for those of us who are into cinema as a as an expressive unique uh, and and very pivotal art form as a form of cultural expression uh, he really did change the way the game is played uh, even the the back of the criterion uh, blu-ray dvd of breathless there was before breathless there was after breathless and i don't think that's just hype i mean obviously people are going to have their preferences and arguments but uh, he he really did shake things up, and he's continued to be an innovator, uh, even if his popular sway and influence isn't maybe what it once was. But there was a time in the late 1960s, and really throughout the, the, the heart of that decade, where if Godard did something, put out a new movie, made a statement, it got noticed, it influenced people, it, it, it affected how they thought, perceived, and, and uh, interacted with the world around them. And so that is exactly why I've decided to sort of take multiple steps back just to kind of dig deep into what this guy was about, because he's a fascinating figure. Uh, he's one of the you know great interviews uh, in cinema history, uh, although he can be a prankster and he can be provocative and all of that. Um he he he's a very enigmatic, interesting figure who I think uh, deserves the kind of study and attention of this thick book that Richard Brody wrote about him, and the fact that he's still not done yet. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see another Godard film coming through the pipeline uh, down the road. I mean, I'm sure he's got lots of footage, lots of stuff that he's done over the years. He he's always been pushing the boundaries, working with video, working with 3D, working with just kind of a new format of cinema uh, in in directions that directors half his age or younger haven't really even thought of yet. So again, that's, that's why I'm dedicating these next three episodes. I'll be doing this one on the four films from 66 and 67. Uh, John and I are going to be doing the Goran Godard box set uh, as a second episode, and then we're going to do a regular episode on Tuva Bien, uh, which has a number of guests. Uh, there's a, several people who've expressed interest in recording with me on that one, so we'll see who all makes it into the mix as far as availability and, and ongoing interest and all of that is concerned. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of Godard for me for the next couple weeks or more, depending on how long it takes for us to put this all together. Um, so maybe let me just ask a little bit of your thoughts on, on Godard, John. I mean, I've already kind of spelled out why I think he's important. Um, what is it that drew you to him and, and that book and, and, and watching the movies as you go along? Because that's going to be a project for you. You're not going to be done by, uh, by the time we're even finished with this round of podcasts. Yeah, and I'm I'm taking it very easy on myself and not, you know, I'm not a, a, a gas dyer. I do not. A binger. <laughs> I do not right. put myself into the, you know, the awful obligation of watching every single film by a director in order. Usually that's not such an awful obligation. I'll say that with Godard, it certainly uh, introduces its challenges. His his cinematic pleasures are not always given up easily. Um, I think a big part of it is, is because so I 
unlike Godard, you know, there's a guy who spent decades of his years and decades of his life basically watching three or four films a day. Um, I, my cinephilia is more recent, always enjoyed films, but like really got into them recently. And so getting into the sight and sound list was sort of part of, as for many people was part of my more serious cinematic self-education at a later time in life. And so you notice whose films on the sight and sound list really don't strike a chord with you or they strike a discord with you because so many of them are so great and so surprising and so not what I'm used to and enjoyable um, that the ones that really get under your skin and grate you, uh, or I should speak for me, the ones, uh, the films by Jean-Luc Godard that I watched on the sight and sound list that irritated me almost made me think more about, okay, so I really don't like this, but he's so prominent. And uh, so much of his work is historically significant, culturally significant, and a lot of people love his work. I need to take this more seriously and re-engage myself. So, you know, get the book, um, re-watch some of the films, watch some of the the lesser seen films. And so part of it was just pushing myself past what felt comfortable and getting back into it. But also there are some films of Godard that I absolutely adored right off the bat. I think contempt is certainly one of them weekend. Um, uh, I don't know if it's surprising or not, but weekend just was something that immediately I thought to myself, this is phenomenal. It's so dark and biting and funny and at times very beautiful um, and now that I'm exploring it more, I think a married woman falls into that category as well. But so just as somebody who's continually trying to learn more, but also not accepting my first reaction to things, I think Godard is, you know, is a big challenge in that way. And so that's really what's bringing me onto this, into this journey. And I have to say so far, I find it quite rewarding. Yeah, well, Godard is a very, he's a powerful intellectual. I mean, he comes from a pretty well-educated background, um, a somewhat prominent family from what I understand. And so he is a guy who throws all kinds of ideas. And John, I mean, I do think of you as somebody who's kind of intellectually driven. I mean, you've got your interests, you know, the trivia, the game shows, but just absorbing information and understanding what it says about the world we inhabit and the the times we live in. And even though, of course, you know, Godard's prime years, and we're talking about the 1960s and into the early 70s here, um, you know, that's somewhat distant past now. I mean, we're celebrating 50th anniversaries of a lot of the events uh, from from that time. Uh, And and so you can say, well, you know, that's kind of all settled history. That's that's old business. But the the the, the ripple effects and the echoes of so many of those conflicts continue uh, to manifest themselves in our contemporary culture. I mean, uh, we're recording on uh, September nineteenth, and right now, the United States and France are at the point of extreme tension. I mean, there's this whole deal that went down apparently between. Uh, Australia and the United States with some English intervention to kind of undercut a previous deal that France and Australia had about 
selling them nuclear submarines. I mean, France has withdrawn their diplomats. So this is a point of cultural tension between two longstanding historic allies. Uh, France and the United States have history going way back to the very foundation of, of this country, uh, speaking from within the United States. Um, and, and yet, uh, as as is the case now, as as was the case in the 19, 1960s when the Vietnam War was at its height, uh, the relationships between the French people, especially on the uh, intellectual class on the left leaning political side, was extremely intense and, and hostile towards the USA. Uh, I think about um, uh, Mr. Freedom, a William Klein movie made by an American who is living in France, an expat, uh, extremely critical of the US policy in Vietnam. And I think that was a huge driver. And I mean, think about somebody like Godard, who's who grew up, uh, you talked about, John, the, you know, the, the, the massive consumption of film that Godard went through as a young person and then developing into a very well-known and, and prominent film critic, really almost like philosopher of cinema, uh, loving Hollywood movies, you know, loving Howard Hawks and Nicholas Ray and, and, and you know, Truffaut and Hitchcock and all of that. Uh, they had a, a massive kind of a crush and infatuation on the, the Dream Factory productions of, of Hollywood in the 40s and 50s. They grew up on this stuff. They loved it. They embraced it like, uh, you know, the Beatles, uh, the young Beatles embraced rock and roll uh, and all the other British invasion bands, Rolling Stones, the Kinks, whoever, they all kind of, you know, uh, fed off of American culture. And yet now here's Godard, this, this self-professed lover of American film, uh, feeling intense hostility towards the United States because of the, uh, the conduct of the war in Vietnam and this rupture of, of, of kind of allegiance and the fact that even Hollywood itself was changing, you know, they, uh, Godard was a was kind of a, a student of the Hollywood film system, the, the classic golden age thing, which had pretty much ceased to exist by the time he himself actually started making movies and transitioned from being a critic to being a director. He, Truffaut, uh, René, uh, Chris Marker, I mean, the, the, the whole bunch. Uh, Eric Romer, I think is who I kind of meant to refer to, not Marker, because he kind of came along a little bit later. But in, in any case, there was this little scene, if you will, of, of people loving American film, but suddenly not really loving the American expression of political power uh, in, in all of the tumult that was going on in the 1960s. I mean, France also had its own thing with the Algerian uh, independence, uh, you know, the colonization that France had engaged in earlier in the century, and that whole colonial era of of, of nations in Africa, of, in Asia, in Central and South America, becoming you know free and truly independent from the colonial powers, this is a time of a very uh, profound transition that was happening on the international stage, and so here you've got Godard, uh, a figure who has had been credited, uh, had been celebrated, who was very conscious of his celebrity status, of his influence in his role or even a sense of responsibility, you might say, as a public intellectual uh, to make statements about what's going on and, and what should we do about it. Um, he, he, he was very, you know, very engrossed in, in, in these debates. And you see in the course, even films earlier than what we're going to talk about, films like Perot Lafoud, which had a very extensive 
critique of the situation in Vietnam. Uh, even earlier films, Le Petit Soldat, and uh, you know, talking about some of the you know the, the the tensions within the French military and its relationships with other countries. So you know, that's just kind of spreading the table, so to speak. So it's just kind of laying out the different issues that were in conflict here, and and this is where Godard is recognizing, you know. Am I just a dilettante here? Am I a person who's living up to my sense of responsibility as a person who does have an influence, who may have a, a small role in, you know, tilting the course of history? Uh, what should I be doing? And I think that's a that's a really fascinating piece of what drove him in the direction that we're going to be talking about with these films. And in the meantime, he's also going through pretty profound personal crises as uh, the, the 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 woman that he you know first fell in love with Anna Karina uh, again he was a bit of a mentor to her he kind of helped give her her exposure her break into cinema uh, they became a very celebrated couple she's a gorgeous woman uh, who has a lot of on-screen charisma uh, uh, appeal just as a as a figure and uh, you know that became a pretty volatile combination I mean I'm, you've probably read all those chapters in the earlier part of Brody's biography to just talking about all the ups and downs of their personal relationship and uh and he was you know a bit older than her and i think as she kind of came into her own she decided maybe he wasn't the guy that she wanted to go through life with and and you know whatever your ego might be whatever your worldly accomplishments might be when you go through a pretty significant relationship failure like that it it messes with you you know and so these films kind of also i think function as kind of a a um almost like a diary or a journal of, of godard's personal life because he really did fuse what was what he was thinking about what was on his mind it, that found its expression in film uh, almost to a fault. In fact, I would say probably to a fault just because <laughs> he threw so much of his personal business out there that it probably made it very difficult for the uh, people closest to him, especially these these women as significant others in his life. Uh, that's a lot to put up with, you know, to have your, your personal intimate affairs thrown up on the big screen where there's a whole global audience ready to check out what's going on <laughs> behind the scenes and between JLG and, and his partner of the moment. So yeah, that's just kind of, again, a, another big dose of context as far as explaining these films and what makes them on, on the one hand, very fascinating, but also I guess one can question, you know, what is the relevance of them today? And I guess I want to maybe pose that question to you as you've been watching these movies and let's get, maybe start getting into the four again, made in the USA, two or three things, last year was and weekend. Um, how have, how have these films, you know, applied to you just in terms of where John Lobinger's at in 2021 and, and kind of just, you know, what's happening in the world around you? Yeah, so I'll probably stall off that question because (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know that that's one that I fully prepared for. I guess, oh gosh, I guess, you know, as any mildly escapist middle-aged man is going to do, like there's a part of me that responds to the tumult in the world by escaping into the past. And so there's a part of me that is trying to understand other periods I mean, look, is, isn't really every period uh, <laughs> of life uh, and history a period of chaos? But I think particularly looking back 
you know, to the to the time that you're focused on in your podcast, I feel like has been of interest to me. And so going back and thinking about everything that was going on in France at that time, I think you, you know, so many different threads historically and culturally you touched on. I think one that's important to point out because we're about to talk about made in, made in the USA. Um, the love hate relationship of the French to the United States and really probably more broadly like Anglo American relations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, really dates back to like the end of world war two. Uh, you know, France's empire came to a screeching halt uh, when Germany pretty quickly invaded. And I think like that and then the popular support of the puppet government in the years afterwards, like I think that that left like a real impression on, you know, people living in France at that time and the years afterwards. And so I think part of it, like if you want to, I'm an actuary, so I look at numbers a little bit like, the idea that 62% of French people disliked the Marshall Plan and like strongly disliked it and thought it was basically a secret attempt for the Americans to sort of have a covert financial invasion of France. Um, it was totally surprising to me when I read about that and thinking through like all the ramifications of that sort of different from what I thought. I thought the Marshall Plan was, okay, the United States helps out all these countries after the devastation of World War II, and everybody loves them for it. And that just wasn't the case, uh, particularly in France. And so, well, right, because France and Germany were pretty profound enemies, and so France sees that, like, like why is, the, you know, why is my, uh, you know, pesky kid brother here getting all the money while we're just kind of left to do it on our own. I mean, to probably oversimplify, but that's the basic argument there, right? Yeah. And if it was ironically enough, if anything, France and Germany actually became much closer afterwards in reaction to, but I think mm -hmm. part of it was just, I think France was a peer amongst peers or even a leader amongst peers. And then at the end of world war two, it was like, actually there are only two world powers now. And you are definitely not one of them. I think there is a sense of that. I think there also is just the sense of like modernity happened at mm -hmm. the end of World War II. I found some other really interesting facts like the uh, adaptation of, you know, electronic refrigerators in households. Basically, people in Europe didn't have refrigerators partly because they couldn't afford a refrigerator, but also partly because they couldn't afford the food to stock in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you hit the 60s, you know, the uh, 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 economic miracles happening uh, in several countries in Europe. And all of a sudden they're flooded with wealth, consumer goods, advertisements, all of these things that are very jarring, are very different, feel like an invasion but also it should be said, and Godard doesn't, I think, talk enough about this, but like people now have enough food to eat, mm -hmm. you know, like, like there are fundamental changes. People are not going to go hungry to the extent that they were before, but things are changing. And I think there was a lot of discomfort. So I think, you know, I, 
I've read your essays and I know how much knowledge about the films you have. I think the one little piece I wanted to bring in mm-hmm. was some of my historical reading that I've been doing recently, just to point out like how profound the ambivalence was to the United States um, mm-hmm. and how deeply and like how many years it went back by the time we get to the 60s. So obviously the U.S. now is engaged in, you know, there's uh, uh, civil rights riots and there's um you know where where the police are riding uh, 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 against uh against people pushing for civil rights or or protesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's the war in uh uh vietnam that the united states have basically taken on the colonial wars of france so like there's all this other stuff going on but it should be said there's also some deeper tensions that are going on which are which are which come up a lot in these four films um and i love the other thing I'm going to put a pen in it before I go on a complete rant, but I absolutely love what you said. And I can't remember. I think it was the weekend essay where you said, you know, the first thing you need to know about the movie weekend is this is the expression of a troubled and desperate man. Mm -hmm. Jean-Luc Godard, I think you could Brody makes the argument that basically the like psychological through line of his films from Viva Savie to right up until like I think weekend is probably the last film is basically American consumerism is why Anna Karina doesn't love me. And it's mm. that's mm. reductive. And I don't mean to, you know, be um <laughs> be reductive or to like yeah. do a hot take, but Brody like makes a pretty consistent argument. And watching those films, it's like, yeah, this is, you know, there's a lot of really troubled stuff going on here. And um yeah, that's that's something I didn't realize uh, in my first viewings of a lot of these films. So I'm going to stop there because I think yeah. those two those two you know themes are so mind blowing in some level that I think we'll just sit with that and we'll we'll move on. I think to some of the films. Well, I think that's a pretty good segue to get into you know Made in USA. That the title of the film really <laughs> kind of crystallizes that whole concept, and the film itself really is uh, Godard's kind of. It's not the final work that he did with Anna Karina, but it really is kind of almost like a, a a eulogy of his relationship with her, and and the film itself functions on one level as this incredibly in-depth study of of her face um you know again i didn't get a chance to see this on the big screen but i can only imagine how overwhelming it has to be putting this thing up on the on the big you know theatrical uh, presentation because her face is so prominent and of course it's prominent in almost all of the films that he he made with her um perhaps not as much with Le Petit Soldat, although there are a few scenes that are pretty classic AK moments. Um, But this one here, um, they had already been, I think, divorced for almost like two years now, and it was pretty much irreconcilable. It was not going to happen. But, uh, you know, they still worked together. They had that kind of an arrangement. Uh, But this really is is in one way an end of an era film because it's it's the last major feature he did with her. He did also one short piece called Anticipation, part of Anthology. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and it's also one, kind of his last uh, genre exercise. It's kind of based on a kind of a political thriller. I think what the name of the story is The Jugger. And and it's it's basically, you know, it's under the, the guise of a kind of an assassination conspiracy 
it, you know, th- that whole convention, the whole idea of plugging this story into, uh, or plugging this film into kind of a story that kind of grabs the audience and gets them caught up in the plot. Uh, I'm not sure that that film is very successful in that regard. At this point, you know, it feels like Godard was producing films at such a rate that they, they functioned almost more like magazines or journals, you know, like he was doing like two or three films a year uh, as far as features, as well as these little short kind of, you know, one-off projects uh, as part of larger anthologies. And so he, again, and this was, this was kind of a, a prominent thing back in this time. I think about 66, 67 bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones are producing two or three albums a year uh, as well as singles, very prolific. I mean, the whole idea was, you know, there's this, kind of revolution happening in, in pop culture and in the expressive arts uh, and you know the boundaries are being stretched uh, taboos are being challenged and shattered in, in some cases and you see all of that happening and i think godard was very much uh you know, in dialogue with even like the rock and roll scene uh, i mean masculine feminine is kind of a an exploration of that kind of pop culture and how it was affecting French youth. And uh, he was an older guy. He was definitely in his thirties at this point and, uh, you know, was a bit removed from all of that and yet very, very engaged and very much part of the conversation. And that's what you have with made in the USA. Um, Anna Karina is like the, the, the central figure, uh, there's an assassination plot going on, you know, the, the details themselves are, are a little bit, you know, escape me at the moment because I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to have the time or the inclination to go really deep on these films the same way that I might if we were doing solo episodes dedicated to each one. Um, just kind of what's, what's coming your take on, on Made in the USA, just to kind of get that conversation rolling a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, both your comments and what you've written elsewhere. Um, I, I I swear I've done my own homework and own analysis, have my own thoughts, but I feel like you've put things that I was feeling into words really well. And one of the things that you pointed out was that if you're looking for any emotional resonance in this film, it's not in the plot um, uh, or the narrative or the characterization or anything like that, which you would expect mm-hmm. out of a traditional film. Instead, mm-hmm. it's really in the face of Anna Karina and not mm-hmm. even the face of Paula Nelson, the character. It is truly just engaging with, um, with, the, with her close-ups and how beautiful she was at that time and sort of getting the sense of Godard mourning her loss still while he's filming her. Right, um, she's like right there, yeah. but she's she's sort of unreachable, impenetrable, if you will, and and just you know she's her own autonomous woman, living her life. She's she's going to perform in films like the Rivets. The Nun was kind of another pretty key moment here where she was kind of branching out, and she wasn't going to just be, you know, Godard's um, female lead. She she had her own career and her own interests to pursue. And, and yet she's not going to just slink away and shut him out of her life. And it's like, yeah, we'll work together. I'll just kind of keep doing my thing. <laughs> and, and he's going to have to deal with it. And yet he does, but in somewhat of a passive aggressive way. And this is, well, I have to say, this is probably the least <laughs> passive aggressive yeah. of his yeah. <laughs> of his films, um, right. other than La Chinoise, which is like sort of a vacation from his anger at women. Um but 
I the made in USA. Um, I think there are other filmmakers that I love that were workaholics during this phase or before this phase made many films and that was all good. But one of the things to realize is the way that Godard made films, his improvisational style, it's almost as if it invited more of a hit or miss um, uh, uh, output of his film. So it wasn't like he had some Mm -hmm. factory. It wasn't like he was, you know, he had like a team around him where they're working on scripts. Like basically the setup for this film is Burgard, his longtime producer needed a favor, needed some money. He basically needed to like paper over some debts. And so Mm -hmm. he needed Godard to make a film really quickly. They, he jumped into a, a bookstore. They got a book and like an hour or two later, they had an idea. Like, (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, Made in the USA yeah. is so clearly improvisational. And then when you read the the facts and the history of it, like you're like, okay, yes, I get that. And I think some of those strains show. I also think some of those strains compound on top of his relationship uh, disappointments where it's like maybe that's part of what's going on. I don't want to psychoanalyze him too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, the rapid output where he's always dangling at the at the edge of doing improvisational film where you have all of this production values and Raul Cotard and these actors and actresses that are real serious artists and you don't have a script that day and you have to constantly, you know, produce and you don't know if you're going to make it or not. I think (laughs) that there has to be like some strain that comes from that. Oh yeah. It's, (laughs) it's like, it's like a high wire act. I mean, he's definitely, he, he is like, Hey, I'm Godard. Check me out. You know? And he knows people are going to watch him. I mean, I think, I mean, I've, I've already talked about uh, the Beatles and the stones. I mean, think about like the Beatles, you know, my name, look up the number. And I'm just kind of jerking off in the studio a little bit, but a record comes out of it. You know, it's a B side. It's a little obscure, little nugget, an oddity, if you will. Um, In some ways, I think Godard was sort of living uh, on, on the, the knife's edge there. It's like, I'm famous. Anything I do because I can produce it with you know, certain you know, aesthetic values. I've got a great crew around me. I've got you know familiar, appealing faces. I've got ideas. I mean, he can do his little um, blurting on the soundtrack, throwing his little uh, philosophical uh, quotes and and kind of little nuggets, his little quips out there. And it's 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 substantial. It's got some it's got some meat behind it, you know. But it, it is kind of off the cuff. It is almost like a, an early form of social media. Like I'm just going to tweet this out there, and 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 but he's going to put it into context of a film. And now the critics are going to sit there and they're going to analyze it. They're going to talk about it. They're going to you know quote their favorite moments. It's going to. I mean, he is kind of part of the intelligentsia. You know, oh Godard did it. You've got to see it. You've got to interact with it. You've got to have a response. Maybe you love it. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you think he's past his prime, but you're still talking about him. And I think these these four films are kind of him surfing that wave and, you know, on the one hand, kind of indulging himself because, you know, he's the brilliant auteur with all the ideas and, 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 this, uh, and this avenue to th- throw it out there. 
And yet you also get the sense that he really is straining under that burden. It's like he's about to have his Bob Dylan motorcycle crash, you know, and and go off to Woodstock for for several months and, and just not release an album for a year. It, it, it just seems to me like this is kind of the the, the crescendo that he's building up toward and, and made in USA is 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 kind of a, a a pretty strong movement in that direction because even though it's got Anna Karina, even though it does have some, it's got Marianne Faithful singing as tears go by, you know, a song written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. It was a popular hit. She was, you know, a pop culture queen herself. And it's just kind of incongruously thrown in there. So she's kind of warbling her song and, and it's, it's kind of hip. It's kind of cool, but it's, it's also just kind of a, a mashup of, of different, things that were happening in the moment and uh, i i happen to love it because it is such a a peon to to the beauty of anna karina uh, there is a wistful tragic element because you kind of know that you know they're both i'm sure carrying significant pain through this i mean they're professionals and they're kind of gutting their way you know through that process of, of making movies together recognizing what it's meant for each of them in their careers i mean i i think you have to make the argument that you know even though anna carino was not in breathless i mean gene seberg she's pretty appealing in herself but godard would not have the audience that he enjoys to this day i don't believe if it was just all about his innovations without a, such a charismatic figure at the center of it all as, as those films that he made with Anna Karina. And he, you know, you can throw the Belmondos and Jean-Claude Brialis and, and, and other, you know, key actors who were, were part of that as well. But I think Anna Karina and Godard as a team, as a, as a pair really, you know, uh, they're, they're immortal in, in that sense, in terms of the, 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 the power of the two of them and their respective gifts coming together in films and this really does kind of represent the end of that. Yeah, and it should be said that it's good that that ended. Um, mm-hmm. So part of their relationship and part of Godard's self-marketing at this time, self-promotion was definitely a lot of tabloid talk about his relationships. And this will come up again in two or three things I know about mm-hmm. her. Um but like their relationship dramas and traumas were not secret. Um, she, I think, tr- tr- attempted suicide a few times during their relationship. Yeah. There was a lot of infidelity. And I think ultimately, like there also was violence in their relationship. Mm-hmm. I think he mm-hmm. admits that he publicly uh, slapped her. So th- it was clearly time for the relationship to end. And But um, Godard definitely was still experiencing a lot of trauma from it. I'll say a couple of things about this movie. I think before we move on, because we definitely want to, I think the other three films are more substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- the two things I want to say are about the two endings. Uh, and yeah. so I think that's a good time for anybody who doesn't want to hear about the ending of Made in USA. <laughs> um, but the two endings, one, uh, the uh, the scene where Paula kills David Goodis, which is, uh, David is like one of the two, I guess both of the, both of the Godard stand-ins get get killed yeah. <laughs> uh, in this film. But when Paula kills David Goodis, the betrayal, I almost feel as if even though it's still this psychodrama of why doesn't she love me going on between Godard mm-hmm. and Anna Karina, it's almost like a little bit more mature and empowering where it's 
at least at this point, she doesn't end up dead. She doesn't right. have to pay for her sins. And, um, you know, so in that sense, I guess it's a promotion. But what's interesting is that he then tacks on a second ending, which is mm-hmm. one of his great moving, talking, transportation dialogues. Right. Um, uh, between Paula and I'm forgetting the name of the journalist who's in the car with them, but it's mm-hmm. this great conversation. It's a mature conversation between two adults Anna Karina. Paula doesn't look like some criminal villain secret agent. She's just a human being trying to figure out what to do next. And then there's also the political layer of they're talking about the left is, you know, too nostalgic and the right is hmm. too. And so you're, you really get the sense that maybe Godard is about to graduate emotionally. And also there is this political crisis that's coming on for this man. Just a really, you know, one of his great scenes, I think. Uh, and we're going to get into another one of his moving uh, dialogues later on um, when we get to La Chinoise. So, yeah, uh, I think that's all I'll say about Made in USA. All right. Well, that sets us up pretty well to transition right over to two or three things I know about her. Uh, these two films, Made in USA and Two or Three Things, were released by the Criterion Collection, back to back DVD only releases. Haven't really gotten the upgrade. Not sure when or if they will. Uh, but they, they are kind of marketed as a pair, and I think they are pretty you know, uh, they're pretty well linked. Um, after his breakup with Anna Karina, uh, Jean-Luc Godard was still looking to resume his love life and uh, was looking for a partner, looking for a person he could settle down with. And one of the women who kind of, you know, earned that consideration um, is Marina Vladi. She's the lead figure in this uh, in this film. Uh, and uh, she's introduced twice, um, you know, at the beginning of the film, both as an actress as well as the character that she's about to portray. And the lighting is different, and it's kind of interesting just to sort of think about Godard. Again, we've talked about his politics and the fact that, you know, he clearly identifies with the left, um, which which also kind of contains within it an egalitarian ethos, a more of a progressive view uh, on women's rights and, and, and the rights of, of minorities and, and people from the developing world, etc. And yet I, I still feel like Godard still had a lot of the old you know, patriarchy and the old traditional uh, outlook on, on male and female relationships kind of coursing through his veins. And I think that is part of the paradox or the dilemma that he found himself in is that he seemed to have a certain expectation for how the women in his, you know, in his life and in his most intimate relationships would, uh, would conduct themselves and, and accept sort of his, his headship, his lead, uh, even though maybe his politics might push him in a different direction and the kind of women he was attracted to maybe had a different sense of, who they were and, and how they fit into his life and, and how they would exercise their own uh, autonomy and, and, and choice in, in their personal preferences and such. Um, so, you know, to maybe to cut to the end of that thread here, Marina Vladi was, was proposed to, Godard proposed to her. She asked for some time to think about it. Uh, and this is after they'd already begun the plans to make this film where she would be starring in it. 
and uh, she ended up declining his proposal, and yet the show must go on, right? So uh, do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of two or three things and, and kind of, you know, just get the conversation rolling there? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of the film came, uh, Godard had already sort of, re- he, he had already known Marina Vladi uh, before, I think, had almost cast her in one of his films, and she was uh, she was a movie star from when she was, a kid basically. And so they reconnected around the time of the dissolution of his marriage to Anna Karina. And before he began filming made in USA, he had conversations to make a film, um, with Marina Vladi. I think it was based off of a Balzac, uh, novel or short story. Anyways, they got totally sidetracked because they found this article, um, about, women who were got into prostitution not because they were super poor but because they wanted to get some of the new consumer consumption items that were now flooding into France and so this was right up <laughs> this is yeah. so in Godard's worldview that he said you know obviously this is what we need to make a movie about so the idea comes in is formed but then he's asked by Beauregard to, Beauregard to very quickly go and make Made in USA, comes back from that, proposes to Vladi, they start to shoot the film. And I think that the order, it depends on, you know, which time you hear Richard Brody t- say the story or whether he's writing about it. But either right before they started shooting or right after they started shooting, she realized like, no, this infatuation you have for me is not going to sustain a marriage, you know, she was a woman that had ever been married before, so she had some knowledge of, you know, what that would take. So, uh, <laughs> the movie... Well, and I would think with, with all of the, the public baggage between uh, Godard and Anna Karina, I mean, yeah. a lot of women would be like, eh, I think I'll kind of keep my distance there, you know? I mean... Yeah, like, how emotionally available... So, first of all, I, okay, so it's psychoanalysts, <laughs> psychoanalysis. <laughs> I, I said I wouldn't do it anymore, but I'm just going to do a little bit. First of all, just how available was he, period, at this time? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. this was a guy that was focused on so many intellectual pursuits and was just so passionate about so many different things and making, you know, two feature films and two short films a year and constantly in the newspaper and do Like, how emotionally available was he to anybody, Right. period? But then how emotionally available could he be right after this public breakup? And in addition, the proposal was public news, was tabloid mm-hmm, fodder. Mm-hmm, so when mm-hmm. she was in Romania with her boyfriend after the proposal, waiting to d- make her decision, the French newspapers were reporting like, will she or won't she? So yeah, <laughs> there was not, <laughs> this is like, this is like, like the, the bachelor. bachelor. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the bachelor, the bachelorette where it's like, guess what guys, it's unlikely you're going to find true love on a reality TV show. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, for someone who's been on the set of a few TV shows, believe me, there's nothing reality about it. Um, so, okay. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's all the backdrop and baggage of the film. Yeah. Ultimately it's a movie, as you would guess about a woman who uh, she's a married woman has, uh, has a family and she supports their meager lifestyle with uh, a part-time prostitution. And uh, you know, that's, that's the setup, I guess, and that certainly comes into it. But a lot of it is just a, a, a space 
it's almost I think one critic has suggested that this is, you know, sort of the birth of the Chris Marker, um, Jean-Luc Godard style video essay. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. totally fair to, you know, Agnes Varda uh, or some other people, but like, okay, mm-hmm. let's roll with it. And I think that taken from that angle, the film is a lot more rewarding, I think, than some of the other stuff. I do want to really point out, I do not like the uh, improvisation that he does, particularly with Marina Vladi in this film. Overall, I don't like it. I think he... Uh, is basically messing with his actresses when he's feeding Mm -hmm. questions or feeding lines into an earpiece that they're getting from him. I think particularly Marina Vladi is like, hey, man, I'm trying to act here. Why are you? And I don't think I think he was hostile to her throughout the shoot. And I think it comes through. It's Mm -hmm. really off putting. Mm -hmm. Um, It was off putting before I knew the context of his emotional relationship with her. But even but especially now that I know about it, I think basically the only person who does a good job with the the only two actresses are uh, sorry. uh, Leod does a great job with it in La Chinoise. Mm And then there's also an actress. I think it's Breton. I'm totally blanking on the name now. But Brito. They, yes. Yeah, she, yeah. Those two. Juliet Brito, right. <laughs> two phenomenal improvisational actors who are really down to do it. But for the most part, he's just messing with his actresses. And it doesn't feel right. And it's disjointed in the film. I don't know why he didn't stop it like after he did it the first time. But yes. um so yeah, so we get in, we get introduced to that, and also I think as you as you pointed out, uh, and I didn't say I think I knew this the first time I saw it because I think I saw Playtime and this film mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. the same time the first time I watched it, but I didn't remember uh, sort of the uh, focus on the dehumanizing nature of modern architecture in 1960s Paris. Um, but like Romer does a lot with this, I think in some of his yeah. films as well. And so that certainly comes up here and is really powerful. And I think your connection to playtime is really good. So a lot of meaty things that go on in this film. I do have an emotionally visceral reaction and it's a negative one to the way that he interacts with Vladi in this film. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can, we can go right into that. Let me just say, I, you know, when you talk about the reference to playtime, it really is, it's these towers that were being built up and kind of the outer rings of Paris. And I've never been to Paris. Um, probably, I know some of our listeners have been, but my understanding is that Paris is kind of built almost like in circles and, and it's, arrondissement is the, is the name of the, the different districts if you will and as a growing city all of the high rises were being built on those kind of outskirts and so figures like Jacques Tati or or Jean-Luc Godard recognized uh, there's a new era happening architecturally culturally again you know not not only talking about the you know, the the abundance of food and consumer products but even even the the customs of shopping i mean this probably is a cultural stereotype but you know the the french who would go out and get their day's goods the baguettes the so the fresh produce the fish or whatever well now you've got packaged goods and and the packaging of uh, of these goods and the supermarkets and the consumerism is a, just another piece here uh these women who are getting into kind of uh kind of a low-key prostitution. I mean, that's also the subject of a film like Belle de Jour by Luis Manuel. Um, they're, they're doing it 
because they want to sort of keep up with the materialistic achievements of their peers. I mean, the the culture is is kind of pushing them into this, you know, somewhat degrading activity that kind of undercuts the whole premise of bourgeois respectability and decency that, um, you know, surface impressions would, would lead you to think, oh, this is a, a happily married woman with her children, you know, living a moder- modestly comfortable lifestyle. But they're in these little, you know, cracker box high rises on the outskirts of Paris. So yes, they're Parisians, but they're not the real Parisians. They're not on the left bank or the right bank, or they're not you know, in the old part of the city. They're kind of in these new sort of suburbs that are springing up there. So yeah, there's there's all of this displacement, all of this uh, kind of unsettledness happening uh, as a result of the economy, uh, mimicking, if you will, the, the American style of consumerism, the supermarkets, the cars, you know, the, the bright packaging, the, the vulgar advertising, the jingles and all of that type of stuff. It's just really like nails on chalkboard to, you know, older school cultural traditionalists uh, like a Tati who has this very warm, nostalgic sense of, of France of the past. And even Godard, who is I think you could say he's innovative and he's progressive and he's trying to, you know, um, push things forward. But at the same time, I think he's realizing that all of these modern changes are not really his cup of tea either. And so I think that's what you see coming through in this film. There, there is a lot of, uh, veiled as well as unveiled hostility just at the kind of the helplessness that, that he's probably feeling because he cannot control so many aspects of his life. He, he can't control his love life. Uh, he can't control the direction of the larger culture. Uh, and, and even, even I think you're also getting a sense here that his movies don't pack the same kind of wallop as they used to, because he's kind of poking around and, and flailing a bit. Um, the films are still events as you, uh, you know, as, as they will be, but, but they're not, you know, galvanizing the public. They're, they're getting, starting to get a little bit more of either indifferent or hostile responses because people are, are kind of getting wise to the idea that he's just kind of slapping stuff together and he's not necessarily giving audiences the kind of satisfying narrative that you see in films like, uh, you know, Band of Outsiders, uh, or, or, uh, Vive Sa Vie, A Woman is a Woman, uh, even Alphaville. I mean, those films, they're all kind of unique sort of expressions of the Godardian sensibility, Uh, but they can also serve as functional entertainment, even if you don't really know who Godard is or even care about who he is as a director. Uh, Here, Godard, the director, the auteur, is so upfront that he almost overwhelms whatever else is happening on screen. Yeah, it's interesting. You already pointed out Godard was at the vanguard of a revolution, a cultural revolution started in France um, and spread pretty much across the world. It's probably a little bit oversimplistic description, but I bet that's how it felt to Godard at the time. And I think reading (laughs) back on it, that's how a lot of the people in the world saw it as well. So the question for him becomes, as the decade goes on, how do I stay at the vanguard of this? Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're absolutely seeing a little bit of a, a little bit of struggle in that way. But we're also, you know, let's not. I'm not going to totally over criticize Godard. The fact of the matter is, 
he would have been a historically significant filmmaker if he had stopped making films once he divorced Anna Karina mm-hmm. and a, a historically significant film critic. And the truth is he still has a lot of ammunition left. Oh, yeah. He still yeah. has a lot of um, groundbreak, groundbreaking work ahead of him uh, and stuff that whether it was in the avant-garde or I would say like these films, particularly weekend um, have like a real, a, a lasting impression in the here and now. Um, and oh, yeah. La Chinoise and uh, Weekend are also deeply prophetic of another revolution that was happening, bizarrely probably connected to the initial revolution. <laughs> that got, so there's so much that's going on with this person who is just struggling to deal with his own demons and his own, you know, it, it, intellect his intellectual struggles the things he's trying to trying to learn and trying to get across and failing and his personal failings and all this stuff he's also at the center of a a global whirlwind and a and a national whirlwind mm-hmm. so you know that's yeah it's some pretty heady stuff and um and i think some of the really positive things that come out of this film as i said were some of these I think he's beginning to become stronger with some of his uh, video essay type work, his mm-hmm. architectural analysis at the beginning of the film. I think obviously his, 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 the shot of the cup of coffee is one of his like iconic mm-hmm. shots. Um, and, but also you see some of that struggle, not just in the stuff of Vladi, which, as I said, it leaves a very poor taste in my mouth. But also, I think in a really interesting way, his struggles with Hollywood film, as you pointed out, he basically made in USA, even though he begins to reveal some of that struggle with his earlier inclination to celebrate and worship classic Hollywood cinema like Howard Hawks. Um, made in USA, he, you know, this is to Nicholas and Sam. Uh, like mm-hmm. <laughs> again, more, more of a, uh, Hollywood cinema love fest, at least, uh, at least an indicator of it, a, a sign, whether or not he still has that philosophy is, uh, but I think at this point, there's no question once two or three things, uh, uh is made, it's very clear. He is washing his, he is washing his hands of the classic Hollywood cinema that he so celebrated and was so much a part of uh, uh, the French new wave. He's just saying, no, this is uh, basically, I would love it if we would just take a three year break and no longer distribute American films. We need to get over this. And I think that's a big part of the film as well. And that's an interesting question as well. Um, So yeah, a lot going on here. I think the movie misses for me a lot because of, some of the conflict of Vladi and how uncomfortable her acting feels at times. But like I said, the video essay portions certainly hint at um, some, some great work that he's going to be um, doing in the future. Well, one more question. Let me just run me past, run this past you is, is Godard's kind of um, audio narrative technique of this kind of very low whisper. He's trying to get you into his world. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't want to continue with that, but, but you know, he, he uses this very, you know, discreet kind of low ambient whispering technique, uh, which for us non-French speakers, or at least watching with subtitles, I don't think you get the same exact effect because you're just used to reading the words at the bottom of the screen. But, you know, 
he really brings the volume down. You really have to lean forward in your seat to make out what he's saying. Uh, what did you just think about that? I mean, it's it's kind of like almost this conspiratorial invitation to intimacy. It's like he's afraid or or hesitant to just speak out loud. I mean, it's it's a somewhat manipulative technique. But did you have a response to that that method at all? A lot of his Brechtian techniques, uh, people talk about like, what is it, epic theater and, um, you know, really trying to get you to notice that you are watching a, a, a piece of a production and, you know, a consumer good and all of that stuff. It kind of washes over me in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's really, it's confessional and it's it's part of the, positive aspects of, you know, director focused autorism, where you get to have uh, some intimacy with a specific human being. And, you know, that can be enlightening. And other times it's just, I, I just, you know, what, what is he talking about? I have no idea. And yeah, I get it. He's trying to get me to not be hypnotized by the film that he's showing so that I'll be more critical about the film. But I have to tell you, I feel like that's really enough. He, I feel like his use of Brechtian techniques is particularly poor at times. In other words, <laughs> you and I have discussed yeah. it, have discussed yeah. uh, Fassbender who often mm-hmm. utilizes um, Brechtian techniques. And that doesn't make me dislike Katzelmarker. I love, I love that film. And yeah. I'm totally hypnotized by it the entire time, even though he's doing all of these devices that are supposed to make me feel alienated from the film and think more critically and blah, blah, blah. Doesn't interrupt my hypnosis. Brechtian techniques usually don't interrupt my hypnosis where I'm fully engaged in the film. Godard's does, but it doesn't get me to always think critically. Sometimes it just puts me to sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a few of those little moments where I had to <laughs> yeah, hit the start the scene over again. Um, you know, and I think again, one thing I'll say, you know, in in uh, the context of what may sound like a lot of criticism of Godard is that I appreciate the fact that he was making films so prolifically and so abundantly during this period because it's just such a fascinating era. You really do have a chance to kind of peek into his diary, so to speak. Uh, and some of those ideas that he's thrown out there work and some of them just don't. Uh, whereas if he'd done maybe more of the traditional thing nowadays and taken two or three or four years between films, we would have missed a lot of this type of stuff. I, you know, in, in a sense, we are privileged to see the failed experiments as well as those things that are quite bravura and memorable and get us all thinking like, yeah, that Godard, what a genius. <laughs> okay. Well, we need to keep the pace moving here. Um, so let's get into La Chinoise. This is again, the one non-criterion title of the bunch, but, uh, and I'm not sure if criterion had a chance at it or just decided not to, or however that deal went down, but Kino Lorber put out a very nice Blu-ray edition, uh, several years ago, and uh, I'm really glad I have it. And it's the one film I haven't really blogged about or, or reviewed, and I had not really watched fully uh, prior to getting ready for this podcast. But uh, again, I found it really interesting. And again, that the, one of the key features here is the the spotlight it shines on Anne Vizemski, uh, best known to this day as uh, uh, as the female lead in O Hazard Balthazar, the great Robert Bresson film from I think 63, 64, something like that. And uh, a film that Godard himself watched, revered, and and you could make a pretty reasonable argument, plausible argument, I guess, that he fell in love with Anne Vizemski 
as a result of watching her on this film. And she really is, you know, almost angelic in that role. And Brassam is just so brilliant at, at, you know, capturing her image and the role that she was in. And Vyazemsky herself as a 19 turning 20 year old woman, um, you know, had a similar regard, uh, a reverence, if you will, for Jean-Luc Godard and wrote him a letter uh, professing her love for him because of her admiration for uh, one was Perot Le Fou. Was the other one? What was the other second film? Do you remember offhand? Was it Masculine, masculine Feminine? Feminine? I think yeah, Masculine right. Feminine was the one where she said, "You know, I'm in love with I'm in love with the man that made this film." Right, and and Masculine Feminine really is Godard's analysis of youth culture. So he was directly speaking to uh, Anne Vizemsky's, you know, generation, if you will, and uh, perhaps as a precocious young woman on the verge of adulthood. Um, she thought, you know what, I'm in, I'm in Godard's circle. He's available. I mean, I, I, I certainly cannot get into her mindset, but she approached him and he kind of took her up on the offer, I guess you could say, especially after the thing with Marina Vladi fell apart. Um, was that the right thing to do? Well, it happened. And again, it's not really my place to judge or, or criticize, but he was what some 16, 17 years older than her. She was still a minor. He had to ask her grandfather for consent to the marriage. She's from a Catholic background. He's Protestant. I mean, there, there's just all kinds of prickly little issues that were probably just little ticking time bombs or landmines <laughs> waiting to blow up. And I don't know how many years our relationship lasted, but it was, it was fairly fraught from the get go, but she is a key figure in this film. And, um, I don't know. I, I was just really intrigued by you. You can see that, you know, the cracks, uh, are widening here. You know, Godard is absolutely plunging himself into the, uh, youth led, political revolutionary movement of 1967 that would kind of fully, you know, blossom or erupt, <laughs> whichever metaphor you want to use, in uh, May of 1968, when the country, really Paris, but really the country as a whole, was shut down by protests, strikes, political disruptions. And for a tangible, you know, moment in time, a period of several days or even weeks, it really felt like France might be on the verge of another major, you know, revolutionary shift, uh, a kind of a collapse and rebuild. Uh, hindsight tells us it was nothing nearly that dramatic, but in the thick of it all, it felt like, wow, we really could be seeing something happening here. And so, yeah, tell me just a little bit of your thoughts, John. Uh, how did you react with La Chinoise? Had you seen this film before? Was this kind of a, a new discovery for you? Uh, what's your history with the movie? Yeah, so this is... So, um, two or three things I know about her and Weekend are films that I had already seen a few times prior to my current deep dive. La Chinoise is not La Chinoise is this is the this is the first time I've seen it, um, mostly just because of availability. As you discussed, it's mm -hmm. a little bit trickier to get to get your hands on than some of some of his other films. And so, yeah, no, it was definitely it was definitely an eye opening experience for me. Um, I think I think 
it's pretty clear that so you said something interesting earlier you said uh godard was um you know left and Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting point because the people that knew godard wouldn't have said that i think as easily before La Chinoise. In other words, there were lots of people like Cahe du Cinema who thought that he was a rightist, like even further right than Eric Romare, who was basically his family was were royalists. And so mm-hmm. there were people that <laughs> like Godard was hanging out with, uh, how do you say his name, Jagoff, who I think claimed he was in the SS during the occupation. So, I mean, like Godard's politics were muddled to say mm-hmm. the least. I well, his family is certainly much more conservative than than he was known for. Yeah. yeah, and we already see there, you know, his the commentary at the end of Made in USA. Um, I think Le Petit Soldat, which not a ton of people saw at the time, but I think you can see in that that it's a little bit more even-handed. There's torture on both sides. Like, his co- politics, whether he was apolitical, whether he was a provocateur, whether he was just, like, a radical, and it didn't matter whether it was the right or the left, like... I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it's very clear that he is staking out a position starting now. Um, And that's super interesting. I think it's also interesting to realize that like in America today, when you call someone a communist, you're really just saying that they're left. Like they're somewhere in the left. You could be calling anybody a communist. Um, And it probably doesn't mean they're actually a communist in France the communist party was specifically aligned with the Soviet uh, government and was basically taking directions from the Soviet government and was a prominent player in French politics. Although I think it was on the decline around the time of the making of this film. And there was also these other leftists that were like your more typical socialists that were like almost center left. And now we have a splinter movement of these radical students who are like, no, your grandfather's communism is not good enough for us. We want to move in a different direction. The status yeah. is not quo and they become Maoists. I mean, it's, you know, so convoluted and it's so intense, but I think, I think from a distance, it's easy to sort of just say like, Oh, that's a historical aberration. But at the time, I don't think that that's anywhere remote. Like communism and Maoism were legitimate choices for the governments of that time to make in continental Europe. And like thinking about how heady that is and the ideological battles that can come out of that. um, It just, it makes sort of some of the like partisan arguments we have now, like almost seem quaint. And that's even after like January 6th and all the stuff that's going on in America today. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, these are million people marches with, lots of destruction, relatively peaceful, but still like the, the revolution was televised and that's all to come in the future. But Godard was like, he was filming the future in the present when he was making La Chinoise. Um, should be said about the movie. It's a movie about five students. They're clearly like quasi bourgeois, even though they're these radical students because they're like living in their parents' friend's apartment over the summer. So it's like, okay, so, you know, exactly how proletariat are you guys? But I think that that's probably par for the course for um, some of the radical left movements in France at that time. But anyways, so that's what you have going on in the film. It's a lot of, like, almost sketches of different, um, different, uh, uh, 
scenes or different lectures or different like uh, a political diatribes happening amongst the students and invited lecturers um, at the beginning of the film. And it's loosely based off of a Dostoevsky novel, which I've never read demons or the possessed, mm-hmm. which is interesting because as I was watching it, I was like, Oh, um, particularly, I think one of my favorite scenes in the film, the um, Francis Johnson and, and I, I'm going to say Wiazemski or Wiazemski. Um, mm-hmm. Playing a character named Veronique. Right? Yeah. Playing Veronique. Mm-hmm. When she has that conversation with Johnson about the um, appropriateness of political violence In the moment, me watching that, I thought, oh, this is so Dostoevsky. And I didn't realize (laughs) that it was actually based on the Dostoevsky novel. So, so yeah, uh, uh, the context of these films is uh, at times almost uh, overwhelms the actual film itself. But with that being said, this is one of his better films of this type, one of his better political films. And it doesn't hurt that it has, you know, he likes the lead actress, which is good. Well, it, it's it like reminded me of he has a yeah. positive. <laughs> well, it reminded me of yeah when 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 Godard did a woman as a woman, uh, and he was like just head over heels in love with Anna Karina. That that film maybe is his ultimate shrine to Karina, you know, because it's just it's so upbeat and so cheerful, and she gets a chance to sing and dance, and and it's just very entertaining i mean you can just feel the the oozing infatuation come through and i mean he's he's not maybe the same giddy young buck that he was in 1961 62 when he did a woman as a woman but you can absolutely tell there's a fondness for anvia um the way she's framed the way he's giving her you know lines to speak and 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 he is definitely playing sort of that Svengali in, in, in her real life. I mean, she's a very young woman who's infatuated with him. Um, I think he sees her as pliable and as educatable. Like he can kind of, he can cultivate her taste in movies <laughs> and, and kind of maybe have his way with her a little bit more, which again, um, I understand that, but it feels again, a little bit ma- manipulative, but the scenarios themselves really do feel like a lot of late, night dorm room talks you know of of young uh, relatively comfortable students from affluent families uh, kind of differentiating themselves from the previous generation and and kind of having these speculative conversations about if we could just kind of you know trash the system and overhaul it and create a, a socially just world and and the new new values that were un, uncluttered with all the debris from the past what would it be like and i think that's where the the maoist thing comes from and again you know 50 odd years later you know we all have our own takes on china maoism the cultural revolution and and we know a lot of the horrors that that real people experienced um and 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 it's not like they were completely oblivious to those horrors either but there was this sense of militancy like you know even if we have to you know imprison and punish people who don't get on board uh, even if we have to exert political violence against innocent bystanders to get our point across Yes, damn it. We are serious. We are going to make this revolution happen. And, you know, there, there will be blood, there will be sadness and grief, but it's the necessary price that must be paid for us to put all of this injustice and inequality and, and, and imperialism behind us. You know, that that's kind of the zeal of the moment. And I think Godard was 
both trying to tap into that energy and was also kind of coming to the end of his sense of almost purpose uh, as far as so I can make films, I can get the press, I can be influential, I can make money, I can express myself and do my art. But but so what? You know, what difference does that make when when the war in Vietnam continues? Uh, when when the the Soviets and the Americans have this kind of buddy buddy, you know, uh, detente? They they just kind of you know keep the system going and keep milking the Cold War for their own respective benefit. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, the, the 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 oppressed masses suffer because they're they're caught in the grinding gears of capitalism and Soviet style communism. There there has to be a better way. And I think this is this is what you see. Godard is responding to the horror of of terrible, large scale cultural and political forces that seem, you know, to be running rampant without any real checks or balances. You know, where's the justice? Where is the, the you know, where's the peace? Where is the the well being? Can I, can humanity not do any better than this? miserable wretched situation that we find ourselves in i mean these are the kind of big issues that are are kind of gnawing away at him and as an artist who is capable of reaching an audience i think he's groping for a solution that says look let me use these skills that i've perfected in in a way that actually makes a difference that that actually matters to real people now whether or not he was effectual i mean you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you know, the fact that w- is when he went into that overtly political cinema, <laughs> his influence waned quite a bit, you know? And so uh, you, you can maybe almost look ahead to these the Ziga Vertov films as a, as an ex- another experiment that didn't really pan out all that well. But I'll, I'll say that with the caveat, it's like, I haven't really fully engaged with those films yet. I've watched a little bit of them. Um, but I want to sort of see for myself what kind of impact they make. Here, here is Godard, kind of still at the height of his fame, and and actually, La Chinoise did have some unexpected commercial success in the um, kind of the the college film circuit in the United States um, after it was released in in sixty eight, and kind of made the rounds. Um, a lot of people were very interested. I mean, John Lennon himself put that line in in the song "Revolution." If you go carry in pictures of Chairman Mao, you're not going to make with anyone anyhow. So, I mean, Chairman Mao was definitely a happening thing in youth culture of that time. Uh, even if Lennon wasn't himself all that convinced. A lot of people were at least thinking about Chairman Mao and considering it a viable alternative beyond the the big two that were the superpowers at that time. And I think France trying to find its own way, um, you know, that had to be at least thought through and 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 taken into consideration. And La Chinoise is one of those pieces that sort of put Maoism out in front. Uh, where it went from there, you know, not not that far. Um, and it kind of sets us up for May of 68, which uh, we'll probably be even talking a little bit more in the, the ne- next episode. But I don't know. What are some other thoughts? Any other standout moments from Les Chinois that you want to uh, bring to our attention before we move on to weekend? Yeah, let's talk about some of the standout moments. Uh, we have to talk about the great scene on the train. And I know that yeah, that's like sure. towards the end of the film. So it's jumping over a lot of meaty stuff. Um, but I just have to get that out of the way. I love this scene. I really enjoy Godard's transportation 
dialogues a lot, <laughs> uh, whether it's Alphaville or whether it's in Made in USA. Um, here is one of my favorites. And this actually is one of the examples. So it's Anne Wiesemski's character, as well as Frances Johnson, who really was her tutor when she yeah. had failed her baccalaureate exams and needed to retake them. And he was also one of the foremost advocates for um, the Algerian resistance movement, the Algerian liberation movement, which included some support of political terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, and he's having this conversation with with the 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 Maoist Marxist Leninist character who's considering political violence to put her theory into action. And he's saying, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Like, are you at the <laughs> forefront of, of a movement? And she says, no, well, I'm going to make the movement through my violence. And he's like, yeah, I don't I don't think that's really how it works. Uh, you know, maybe maybe do the work. <laughs> to try to get people to where they need to be before you start blowing up universities. Um, and it's interesting because Godard says that when he made that film, he thought that her argument won. And mm -hmm. it's clear to me watching it that she doesn't win. And in fact, she basically gives up and she's speaking. Godard is speaking into a, like he's speaking into the earpiece. So we character is saying these things to Johnson and he's responding sort of in his own improvisational way. And so it's basically an argument between Godard and um, and this activist. And Godard felt like he had won the argument. Yeah. Years later, he realized like, no, it's pretty clear when you watch it. And this is where I come to. Like political violence is merited in some situations, but rarely so. And certainly it doesn't feel like it's merited in the situation in this film. Um, yeah. And I would have yeah. to, I would have to argue like, you know, some of the, some of the political arguments in Europe at this time for political violence did seem really like more focused on an anarchy than they were focused on political ends. And again, perhaps this is just me, you know, middle-aged talking decades from them, but I think, you know, a lot of this stuff that was going on was just people were so desperate to do something and and to change the way the the status quo, which felt so uh, um, just so choking that mm -hmm. uh, they were willing to go go to these ends, which we would never like. I think in contemporary America, I don't think that we would advocate our our young people to become terrorists. And the the film is very it's very murky <laughs> in terms of mm -hmm. that stuff because then so you have this wonderful, very convincing scene, um, you know, in Godard's mind at that time that like okay, we need to put our theory into practice and that might cost some lives, some innocent lives, and this will come up in the Ziga Vertov films later, but then. Um, we have some of the scenes afterwards where it's like when Vyazemsky's character goes to assassinate Shalikov, uh, the Russian sort of cultural ambassador, mm -hmm. she gets the wrong hotel room and she kills an innocent person. <laughs> and it's yeah. almost played for laughs. And you get it the is. sense that it, yeah. these people have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Right. And so I'm fully convinced that at this time, Godard genuinely was persuaded that uh, it was time for political violence in order to in order to change things. 
Um, I, I, I agree with that. I, th- yeah. I really feel like uh, that was just the fever pitch that things had gotten to. I think de Gaulle either had been reelected or was on the verge of being reelected, which he was the prime minister of France, uh, of course, a war hero and all of that. But it, you know, I, I just think about certain, you know, presidents <laughs> who've been elected in my lifetime and just the incredible, like, I cannot believe that that person has to be the leader of our country. It's just like how how appalling that is, and I I, I have to identify perhaps with Godard who is feeling that, and then not just him, but I mean many other people. It's like that is not the direction. In fact, that is the 180 degree opposite direction that our country should be moving in. And and when you're kind of caught up in that kind of helplessness, it's like, yeah, let's just do anarchy. Let's just kind of blow things up and, and see what happens after that. If there's not a plausible plan for a coherent revolution to take place. And I mean, it is, it, it really is kind of flailing and kind of lashing out just because you're so appalled by the way things are going. Let's just kind of take a random shot to see if it'll get better some other way. Yeah. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just a gall they had had within yeah. that last decade, you know, De Gaulle wasn't even like the far right. <laughs> De Gaulle, no, no. There were people, there were people in that country in the fit at the end of the fifties that were basically ready to stage a coup, um, in order to keep Algeria, uh, as a part of France. So, um, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, difficult uh, for even uh, contemporary Americans who we have our own partisan strife like it's difficult for me at least to like fully comprehend um, uh, just how complicated the the scene was in France at that time it's you know it's kind of stretches the imagination so yeah and so he's making he's making that turn but he still he still has i don't know if it's the prankster side of him if it's a sense of humor or if it's sort of like a hedging his bets like you know maybe i am going a little bit out on a ledge here because i think there certainly are aspects of the film which have built into it like hey this <laughs> the, the, the 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 this political um, this political violence, this Maoism may not be fully well thought out. <laughs> we, there may mm-hmm. be some flaws in our, our line of reasoning here since basically everybody involved is, is bourgeois anyways. And where would we even fit in 10 years from now if we effectuated the revolution that we're so advocating for? We'd all be in right. gulags. So, um, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing. But I have to say this certainly is a film where there's, he's brought a lot of energy back into it. Um, it's obviously still misanthropic because that's just the way he is and the way he makes mm-hmm. his films. Um, it's very of the moment, but also, you know, has Jean-Pierre Lyod, who's like uh, one of the great Godard stand-ins. He's oh, just, he's fantastic. He's fantastic yeah, yeah. in this film. And I think he's certainly, there's an alternate universe where Godard mm-hmm. made Weekend and made La Chinoise and continued down this road. And mm. I think he would have made a lot of films that had a ton of impact on radical politics and on the culture and, uh, you know, would have been very successful. I think we'll come to find out that isn't the universe we're in, but we <laughs> definitely yeah. need to go on to weekend because this is like we do the yes. piece de resistance. 
Oh, this is just an incredible incendiary, you know, bonfire of a movie. Um, just so much going on here. And I do regret we have a fairly limited time because of another commitment I've got to keep. So let's just kind of just jump into it. I mean, Weekend, uh, it is the the howl of rage. It is a kind of a cataclysmic uh both a meltdown of sorts, but also a tour de force. I mean, it is one of the most, um, you know, incredibly provocative, unsettling movies I've seen. And and again, it's it's not even so much the the you know power of the imagery. I mean, that's that's part of it. But it's just it's just that kind of sustained uh, assaultive aspect of of what Godard poured into the film and as as you kind of immerse yourself somewhat in his world and what got him to this point uh what a what an incredible expression of 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 rage and despair and and yet indictment he's he's not giving up on himself he's really kind of throwing out uh, uh an accusation and and uh kind of a, a warning uh, really what's what's the word almost like a verdict against the complicity to which so many of us uh continue to hold uh with with just the injustices that are built into the status quo uh, it is it's just it's a pretty overwhelming experience uh, my introductory thoughts what what do you want to say about weekend to follow it up yeah, weekend is great. Weekend is fun. <laughs> just, just like straight off the bat, it's you know from from La Chinoise to this film, it's just very clear that he's going. It still has the same. It still has the same political sense. Um, certainly, certainly, just raging against the changes in the country that he's seeing, the consumerism, America. Uh, you know. Um, the the discord between the sexes um uh definitely definitely comes into play big time here yeah. the but pop culture of the of the two leads and kind of their place in uh in french cinema as entertainment yeah Miral dark and the other guy uh they're kind of almost like a i thought i heard one analogy of like tom hanks and meg ryan of a sort you know back in the sleepless in seattle era so you know they they he's kind of subverting even sort of pop culture and entertainment and drawing all of that into his diatribe here as well and he starts off and part of it is he's spoofing <laughs> he's spoofing <laughs> traditional cinema at the beginning um, but it's really effective because he's giving the audience again, while probably making fun of them and making fun of, uh, that type of cinema making, he is willing to give people what they want. Beautiful shots of this beautiful mm -hmm. bourgeois, like couple, um, well, she's beautiful. I don't know if I could say that he is, but like, yeah, they're surrounded by beautiful people rich people and you know the filming is very beautiful there's like shadows and people doing persona-esque orgy mm -hmm. monologues and you know <laughs> yeah. in their underwear and and there's humorous like um top-down shots of cars uh smashing into each other and and people fighting each other over there's just yeah, there, there's slapstick and yeah it's like tati again being hippies and yeah, all kinds of it's crazy like a very on, dark tati that he's bringing <laughs> mm -hmm. into the beginning of this film and it's like oh thank you jean-luc godard for reminding right, us even, you're right that you're an amazing filmmaker <laughs> who can well the constructions of these traffic jams yeah. and the whole the visual stunts that are packed into that 
famous tracking shot. You're right. The Tati comparison. We talked about Tati a little bit with the architecture and playtime, but but you're right. The 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 sight gags much more uh, abrasive. Obviously, Tati never went that dark by any means. But even though Tati did have his you know his moments of of kind of piercing uh, satire and stuff, but yeah, this this is on another level. But but you're right. It's coming out of that same kind of. Um, same same kind of attitude, you know, to, to, to kind of really needle the audience and, and you know, shock you and, and shake you up a little bit. But he takes us on a, a, a downriver expedition where things mm-hmm. are about to get dark. You know, it's like one of those things where he he tricks you into believing yeah. like, yes, I'm I'm inviting you to contempt again. I'm inviting you to another beautiful film that's going to be biting and funny and satirical, but it's traditional. And then things take a very sharp turn, <laughs> and, you know, uh, no pun intended, because it actually happens after you get out of that long tracking shot and they get out of the traffic jam and they take the right turn. Now it's mm-hmm. like they're entering the heart of darkness. They're yeah. I, I, Apocalypse Now definitely yes. came to mind as we we're talking about this. And and that that tracking shot, you'd think that would be sort of like the capstone. Like they, that's the big, you know, piestres, uh, stones that they throw at the end. No, that's just really kind of almost like the opening, you know, gambit right there. Yeah, and things things get weird and violent <laughs> and cruel, and it's you know he's just saying that uh, you need to eat the rich, and um, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I know now that I'm center left, and I know why. It's because I think we should tax the rich. Like radical <laughs> left is like, no, you need to eat them, um, yes, and and yes. we certainly we certainly get to there. But in the middle, he you know it's now it becomes surreal. It's pop culture trippy hypnotic it's violent it's you know oh gosh the the sexual assault that takes place on the the roadside yeah. is brutal it's, even though it's not graphic but no. it's it's so cold it's so detached you know and so indifferent it, that's even more horrifying i suppose than if you'd seen the assault itself and in a movie that's so biting and so satirical where you can laugh at a lot of the violence and stuff that happens, there's no chance you can laugh at that. But then he immediately launches into some other political diatribe with, mm-hmm. with, a with, um, a garbage truck and, and, you know, arguments, uh, uh, about politics and sharing sandwiches. And it's right back to seriousness mixed with comedy. It's, it's yeah, that a, musical panning or you know, rotation shot there, that 360 in the barn. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> such just, an interesting shot to me yeah, because that yeah. is so beautiful to me. Whereas other people have said it goes on too long and it's soporific. And I'm like, no, this is, you know, this is the no. stuff that art cinema is made of. And if he had, con- again, if he had continued making movies like this, where he mixed in his hardcore biting political angle with, you know, traditional art house film that people were, you know, people were already ready to clamor for. We'd have a totally different worldview of Jean-Luc Godard because he clearly doesn't go that route. It goes in a different direction. Um, mm-hmm. But this movie certainly hints at like what could have been that shot. My one of my favorite shots of the last decade is mm-hmm. uh, Lee Chang Dong's uh, Peace de Resistance and Burning which now in retrospect clearly is cribbing off of um, that circular piano shot uh, with, again, our friend, our friend, the, the hardcore writer, Paul Jagoff, um, mm-hmm. playing the piano. 
Um, yeah. Th- yeah, this movie just... And is- Mozart, you know, which is kind of that classical era, you know, very elegant, high class, you know, although it's it's music for the masses as well. So some interesting sort of philosophical discourse on the power of music that Godard kind of just casually tosses into the mix there. Really fascinating stuff. Yeah, this is a movie that we could absolutely have spent this entire time talking about. Interestingly enough, he... Interestingly enough, the <laughs> famous story about this film is that he wraps w- production on one of his greatest films. Um, for me, it's his, it's in his top three so far of the films I've seen of his. He wraps and he tells everybody, find a different line of work. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, what? It's like, come on, man. You're just getting, you're hitting your stride. You could, you could change the world all over again. But I think, you know, Brody is so great um, in his book at times. And he really sort of says it well here where he says, you know, at this point, it's like radical politics had surpassed his radical cinema. And he just had to figure out, like, where on earth do I go from here? Um, mm-hmm. And Weekend is weekend is tantalizing because it hints at it hints at other other potential filmographies that never happened with Godard, but it's yeah. in and of itself it's absolutely beautiful and is a film that I treasure. Well, and I think I think you know we may sitting on the outside looking in really underestimate or just don't have a real grasp of the difficulty of producing art at this level. I mean, think again, I've already referenced them a few times in this conversation, but think about the Beatles. You know, a lot of people say Abbey Road is like their, their best album, their most fully realized singular work. I kind of like some of their earlier stuff a little bit better, but if you go on that premise, the Abbey Road is kind of like the new plateau. Like what else can you do? what would future Beatles albums have sounded like? We see what they did as they broke up. And I think this is kind of where Godard maybe just had to get off the train. And so it's like, you know, the psychic cost of producing a film like Weekend, where so much really hinged on him. I mean, he definitely had a great crew, Raoul Cotard, the, the cinematographer in particular, and, and, and the actors that, you know, were for hire. I mean, but this really... I have to figure this this exerted a cost on uh, on Godard's soul and on his psychic and mental spiritual capacities to produce this. And you know, I certainly have to respect that he said enough's enough. I've I've gone as far down that road as I can, and he needs to reset. So you know, the alternate universe. Yeah, we could we could imagine what what else might have happened, but it might have been more than he could have borne. I mean, I you know. I think he had his own bouts with depression and anxiety, uh, even if those words don't come up or he didn't get the diagnosis. I mean, as I said, and, and as you quoted, I mean, this is a this is a man who's in pretty rough shape, and yet he's still producing art at a very high level. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I appreciate and, and I respect what Weekend represents but i also respect that he probably just needed to to hit the reset button and start something different and that's pretty much what he did um starting with uh the early stages of production of le gay savoir which we are going to talk about in our next episode uh, as well as the five films in the godard plus garin 1968 71 arrow box set so yeah, um, my timeline, my clock is winding down really quick. So John, really quickly, um, 
where are things that with you as far as like film baby film and and just kind of you know let listeners know a little bit what's happening with you lately before we close this thing down for today well basically i've given up podcasting for direct revolutionary politics so um... (laughs) all right let me sign your petition after we get offline (laughs) thin do episode thin do podcasting uh all right well you know we all have our seasons but it's been so much fun talking with you this has definitely lived up to my expectations i just wish we had a little bit more time and we're a little bit less rushed but i hope listeners you've all enjoyed dipping in on our chat here as we get into this pivotal phase of godard and we've got some interesting conversations up ahead so anything else before we sign off john hey look we're just getting started just wait until wait until the next episode. So yeah, no, thank you so much, David, for having me on. This is obviously such a massive topic. It's a little daunting to uh, 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 to try to take it on, but it's always so much better when you know I, I can chat with somebody who is uh, as as infatuated with some of the ideas and some of the questions that a filmography like Adard brings up. Excellent. Well, listeners, if you think there's more to be said, or if you've got reactions to any of these films or this stage of Godard's career, please let your comments be known. I look forward to interacting with others who may have a thought or two, a hot take or a cold take for that matter on uh, these films. So thank you for listening in. We'll be back with uh, part two of this uh, anticipated three-part series very, very soon. But for now, uh, that's the end of the show. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Le Vietnam brûlait, moi je hurle Mao, Mao. Johnson rigolait, moi je vole Mao, Mao. Le Napalm coulait, moi je roule Mao, Mao. Les villes crèvent, moi je rêve Mao, Mao. Les putains criaient, moi je ris Mao, Mao. Le riz est fou et moi je joue Mao Mao C'est le petit livre rouge Qui fait que tout à fait bouge L'impérialisme dit que partout sa loi La révolution n'est pas un dîner La bomba est un tigre en papier Les masses sont les véritables héros et moi je mets ma homao Les fous sont rois et moi je bois ma homao Les bombes tonnent et moi je sonne ma homao Les bébés fuient et moi je fuis ma homao Les russes mangent et moi je danse ma homao J'appelle C'est le soldat Le vrai pouvoir est au bout du fusil Les monstres seront tous anéantis L'ennemi ne périt pas de lui-même